Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is returning to the show after a two-year gap. For most, that would be a reasonable time difference between appearances on the podcast, but today it's different because Greg Hendrick is the CEO of the startup Vantage Risk, and two years in the lifetime of a company that is less than three years old is practically a lifetime. We've got a lot of catching up to do, and this episode sets everything straight at a really fine pace. Greg has always been confident and accomplished in his encounters with the media, and this meeting is another vintage performance. Nothing is off-menu, and we rattle through where the firm feels it's performing against its original business plan and the big strategic calls Vantage has made, particularly on Property Cat. We examine some of the early fruits of the group's big bet on the application of data analysis and technology in core underwriting decisions, and also look at how the hard reinsurance market is affecting the insurance market, and Vantage's own development plans. We also discuss possible medium-term avenues for the group's original investors and the group's attitude to M&A. Vantage is likely to push through a billion dollars of gross written premium in 2023 and is starting to get up on the plane, as Greg would describe it. Greg himself is always on the plane, and this is an energising and fun encounter that will get you right inside the mind of one of our sector's biggest thinkers and most dynamic actors. Enjoy the podcast. Greg, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Mark, thanks for having me. Thrilled to be back here. Hard to believe it's almost exactly two years ago that we last spoke, so thrilled to be back. Okay, so easy first question. Just give us an update on where you are, how have you proceeded against the original plan, and what sort of size and scale you're getting at now. When I sat down with you, I laid out the three pillars on which we founded Vantage. So let me run through those and give you a little bit of color where we've gotten to over the last couple of years. Look, for what we do, reinsurance and specialty insurance, there's no doubt about it that it's still a people business. And so anybody that runs one of these operations is a fool not to tell you the number one pillar is talent. We are now 250 colleagues strong. I am thrilled with the uptake we've had. They come from 40 different legacy companies. So this is decidedly a a mix of the best. And the original premise we had when we set this up was that a lot of the risk-taking capability in specialty insurance and reinsurance have been aggregated up through M&A into a handful of very large companies. A lot of folks we felt would want to come and help us build something, and they have. And that's been just really fantastic. So if you want to do the scoring system, big double check mark on talent. We're thrilled with where we are. Because Greg, I suppose there's always that moment when you start a new venture, you think, well, these are my kind of A-list of people I'd love to come. And, and it's always a worry that you know they might not actually come. They might not be able to leave or you know the incumbent employer might make them an offer they really can't refuse or that kind of thing, or the timing isn't right. So it's been okay. You've been able to get everyone you wanted. Like any firm, some things didn't go as well as we would have hoped, but I always judge it by we're on track. The 250 will probably go north of 300 by the end of 2023. And we do use recruiters, but very, very, very seldomly. And it's really more for when we talk later about technology and data analytics, it's more for those types of roles where we're actually hiring from outside the industry. For me, double check on talent. The second pillar was technology. I think it's great we don't have legacy reserves because we're a de novo startup. It's even better not to have legacy technology. And we have taken advantage of that every way we can. We've built everything in the cloud. We don't own any. There are no servers or backbone equipment at Vantage. It's all in the cloud. We've been able to build a blend of 
what I would call the core operational technology is mostly rented or licensed from others. We didn't see a lot of franchise value being created in the claim system or the policy issuing system. You have to do those things. You have to do them well, and we do, but they're not, they're not franchise value. And then some of our own build with our own internal talent is around what I call the value add, the underlying workbenches and some of the data and analytics models. We can go into those later in greater detail. So I give it a check and a half on technology. When you start with nothing, you're in a manual environment, you're building, it's a startup. Those things don't change. That's a reality of who we are through our journey. But we're certainly on the right trajectory to take advantage of the technology. And then the third one was curiosity and creativity. You know, Are we going to come at this differently than folks have in the past? Yes, on the underwriting lens, we're putting ourselves out there to ensure where the risk is being built in the future, not where it's been built in the past, i.e. tangible in the past, intangible in the future, but also around how we operate. Let's not just recreate what we've all done before. Let's really think about how we do things a different, better way. My favorite thing to say is there's no such thing as the Vantage way for most things we do because we've only been here for a couple of years. So there's probably a better way to do it. Let's, let's find that better way. And then the data analytics pricing models, You know, we are pushing hard on those. And so for me, out of the box, I give us a double check on that. So we're doing great on all three of those fronts, talent, technology that enables data analytics, so lets that talent make better decisions. This is a people business. It will be a people business. We are using the data and the analytics to give better information to our decision makers and then being curious and creative as we go along through the day. Well, I shouldn't just give you all the rosy, no doubt about it. <laughs> when we sat down, I think I was in lockdown in Florida, and I certainly felt by the end of 21, we'd be all back to something more approaching normal. That didn't quite work out that way. It just took longer to get things done in insurance in particular, because it's such a gritty operational business, like acquiring legal entities and getting them approved by state regulators, getting certain projects done and dusted. It took a little bit longer than I would have hoped on COVID. But if I weigh those two things, the pros and the cons, super happy with where we are and what we've built to add Vantage. And can you share any kind of premium numbers? I know sometimes people can't, but you can give us a rough idea of where you are. One of the wonderful things from my prior lives is being private. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. It's really a wonderful feeling. So we'll enjoy that for as long as we can. But certainly in the spirit you of You might want to, though. You see, Greg, you might want to. You might want to impress us by how many billions you've got. Absolutely. In the spirit of a good conversation, we finished 22 north of $400 million of gross rate and premium and reinsurance and north of $400 million in insurance. So we were, roughly speaking, 50-50. And an 800 million plus gross written premium in our second full year of operation. And really, with what I said a few moments ago about some of the operational delays of getting going in insurance, it's really only like month 18 for yeah. insurance. We didn't write our first policy until May of 21. So I'm thrilled with where we are. I think 23 will be, and we can touch on this as we go through the chat, 23 will be a, a year of and reinsurance of a pivot. We're coming off of property cat excess of loss treaty on our balance sheet into our Advantage vehicle. So the reinsurance will be smaller on on gross rate and premium on our balance sheet, but insurance will continue its growth trajectory. And so all things being equal, we plan to be north of a billion dollars by the end of 23 in gross rate and premium. Three years of hard work, a lot of great people, a lot of effort all around the place to make it happen, but very happy with where we are on that trajectory. I'm thinking back to that conversation two years ago, and you said really clearly that you saw insurance was definitely the better opportunity over reinsurance. But of course, reinsurance, you were able to start quicker and you can get income quicker in reinsurance. And of course, given your own background, you could do that probably with a few phone calls. Do you still think that though? Of course, 
at that time, it was insurance that had been busy resetting itself. In fact, we talk about that reinsurance tail wagging the dog. The dog had been quite happy to wag itself for the first time that many of us would remember in a cycle. And now, of course, that tail has wagged pretty hard. Does that change your calculus from what you've just said in the opener? It doesn't sound like it's changed your calculus much at all, that you're more looking forward to this insurance growth over reinsurance growth and and even actually offloading some of that reinsurance risk onto third parties. Yeah. So there's a lot in that question, Mark. Let me try and unpack it. One, from the very top, high up level, it is more about the fact that the equity markets value insurance more than they do reinsurance. Now that gap has closed. So as you mentioned, yeah. the calculus changing. That gap has closed recently last month. Is that a permanent closure or is that a temporary closure? I think what will answer that question will be, can reinsurance as an industry show discipline first make some money, right? It's been a real challenge for all of us to make money in reinsurance over the last four or five years as, as an industry, and then sustain that, not go right back to compete it away. But for the moment, I believe still fundamentally building an insurance franchise, it's harder operationally. It's stickier in general when you get it built, that that has more value to equity investors as they come along and want to put a value on a franchise. So that's the driver of why we're kind of loosely saying 70% insurance, 30% reinsurance. If I come away from that broad statement, I love reinsurance. You just noted that before I'm from reinsurance of three plus decades. I spent two plus in reinsurance. It was only the last decade really that I've gotten into insurance. And so I'm very fond of it. I think it's a great business. But really, in the end, when you build something in reinsurance, you're just not able to monetize the value as much. We did decide, as we came towards the end of 22, that for who Vantage is and the size we are, we're fiercely proud of having raised the billion plus, but it's not as much as it used to be in the old days and hard to make a real difference as a taker of syndicated risk in the reinsurance cap market. So really what we've pivoted there is we're going from being the broker and client bringing us and offering us something and we would take our piece of it, to kind of flipping that and saying 100% dedicated to brokers, trying to target some of the same client base and saying, this is what we have to offer to sell. And here's a dedicated pot of capital to go after that risk. And so that's been the pivot on the reinsurance side. Everything else in reinsurance, we are super excited about. All the specialty lines where we're growing in 23 again on marine, aviation, satellite, energy, crop, property, less or no cat, kind of always hedge that one a little bit. And so we're very pleased with where we're headed there. Is it fair to say that you prefer insurance because it can build franchise value and in reinsurance, it's too easy to get commoditized? And is that why, therefore, you're focusing on those much more specialty end of reinsurance, i.e. reinsuring specialty lines or that kind of thing, because there you can presumably build a more of a franchise value? I think if I just for a moment, park insurance, reinsurance, our premise is that we can build a series of businesses that will be in the low hundreds of millions of dollars of premium each, where we have recognized experts all the way through the value chain from underwriting, pricing, claims, all the way through everything we do. And then I am fairly agnostic of whether that's insurance or reinsurance. I think that my comment on commoditization would be property cat land, that seems to happen historically faster, right? The market changes, prices rise, new capital comes in, ebbs back again. Some of the specialty lines have been a little more stable, less volatile in their pricing lines. But yes, generally speaking on insurance, we hope over time that that collection of businesses is somewhere between 10 and 20, and that each of them are recognized as leaders in their marketplace, and that they're able to carve their niche out and, and build real franchise value for us. 
Right. So you want those brokers, those ultimate customers to be seeking you out because they're seeking out your solutions, your expertise, and you'll be able to give things that they can't get anywhere else, that kind of thing. Exactly. Does the same follow for whatever reinsurance you're going to be doing on your own balance sheet? Yes. I view the team in Bermuda here building a specialty franchise, emerging markets, what we call it here, is another business here. I think they're very well placed to build some real value around it. And we said from the beginning, we were very committed to the ILS market. I mean, Chris McEwen runs reinsurance, ILS and innovation. Aurora Smith and Banks, our CFO, years around this at Goldman Sachs. Bobby Anderson's our general counsel, years around that at Elementum. And then I'm kind of the amateur in the background trying to help out wherever I can. We were just all very committed to the fact that there will be ebbs and flows to the ILS world, but that in general, the direction of travel is for increasing and increasing, yes, in cat land, but also into other lines of business and other risks. And so we felt that was something that was going to be a core part of the Vantage franchise was Advantage, our ILS capability. And so this is not a new pivot for us in 23. This is just an expansion and an acceleration of what we intended to do overall. So we have specialty insurance, we have specialty reinsurance, and we have the ILS business and Advantage. Those are kind of the three core pillars of what we're doing. But this move to de-risk your CatXL book and managing that risk on behalf of third parties in return for a fee, that's a permanent move. Even though, of course, now the market's in a pretty great place, you're not tempted to say, well, I'll, I'll ride the top of this spike and keep some of that for my balance sheet. Obviously, in this market, one presumes you could source an almost unlimited amount of CatXL risk <laughs> at the moment. Never unlimited, but as much as you would like to service the capital that you have. Are you not tempted now that we've had a, this great reset and you can write in, in much higher excess points at much better rates online and with real comfort that you can be in excess of, say, a Hurricane Ian, that kind of thing? Are you not tempted to put some of that on your balance sheet, say, this year or next year, pending market change? Well, Mark, from a personal level, always tempted. I've been doing this for <laughs> 30 plus years. It, this is about as good as a cap market as we've seen. You know, it's not quite 92, 93, but it's, it's close, right? It's not, close. It's, not it's, it's better there. than 2006, right? Yes. And it's getting there. We'll see what the mid year renewals bring. But from a vantage standpoint, you know, you can't use the word permanent. The famous line attributed to Mike Tyson is everybody has a plan until they get punched in the nose. And in a startup, it's very true. You've got to be very nimble and moving quickly and pivoting and reacting to what's coming at you. I've always felt Property Cat's a profitable business over time. Clearly, the last five years have not been true. So you don't just dig in and say, well, it was for most of my career, so therefore it must be forever. No. So I don't ever want to say permanent, but absolutely, we felt strongly that capital that specifically wanted a certain kind of risk was going to form part of the vantage arsenal of capital to bring to bear. And that in property cat, it would be best placed there rather than on our balance sheet. Look, we got going. You noted it earlier, myself, Chris McEwen, Peter White. We've got a great team of folks here, all with great following in the reinsurance market. We were able to get going quickly. We just don't feel the volatility at the moment is the right thing to do for Vantage as insurance has come up on plane and is consuming more capital and as other specialty reinsurance lines. So this is as permanent as anything will be in my world, Mark, which in startup land is 12, 18, 24 months. We'll see what happens as opportunities arise down the road. Right. So we've got this balance between insurance and reinsurance at 70-30. What about, obviously, your ILS business is a fee-earning business. What sort of balance would you like to have as fee-earning rather than underwriting earning? I'll answer that a different way. We're very eager to grow this capability and advantage as fast as we can, both in terms of how much we can bring to bear in the property cat space, but also out into the other lines of business 
backing either things that we source in specialty insurance or reinsurance or in new risk areas altogether. We're just starting over the last few months to build out our cyber insurance business. Down the road, we've seen the first cyber bond issued. Down the road, we would expect cyber would be one of those areas where you would see alternative capital coming in and providing capital support to that. It's not a straight line business, as you know well. It's it's a lumpy business and it ebbs and flows on where investors' appetites are. Right now, it's as much about convincing investors that we've got the risk analyzed right, priced right, and generating the kind of returns they're looking for. So it's a little lumpy. So I, I don't want to engage in kind of where will that be and how big will that get. I just will say that we are working super hard to make sure it keeps growing in both CAD and other lines of business. Well, that's interesting because I hadn't grasped this notion that you would be happy to be securitizing or sponsoring ILS vehicles to support things other than CAT, so cyber or specialty. And some of this business is your own business that you are sourcing. Let me be clear, Mark. We're not there yet, right? This is plans down the road. But this is you know, part of your big it, picture. It was yeah. part of the original picture we had in our minds of having insurance, reinsurance, and ILS. We haven't been able to tackle the specialty front yet, both as an industry and as Vantage, but we certainly will turn our attention to it as we round out and gain more investors that can help us provide capacity on CAT. And so presumably you like that once you've built it, the relative stability of that repeat fee income as part of your bottom line. Yes, absolutely. And the reason I hesitate on what part will fee income be... So you just don't know. You don't know. And I think that's healthy. Again, it's part of being a startup. And we have said, we're not out here to build what already exists with highly successful ILS firms. They are in way better position to manage certain types of money in certain areas. Way, way, way better. We are here to say, we're new. We want to partner with you. What would you like to do? How would you like to look at this risk? Here's how we look at it and find a path together in specific areas of solutions, be they CAT or other. And that's our pitch. It happens to have resonated with some capacity coming into one one, and it's fantastic. And we hope that continues. But that's to us is the value that we can bring to our little spot in the marketplace because there's so many other players that are really good at the, I would call it the much more structured management of cat risk. Well, Greg, I can't think of anybody else in the industry who would have spoken to investors more over the last three years. First, to start up to get the capital to start up Vantage. And then now, more recently, you must have spent a lot of time on this CatXL, finding investors to back that book of business to take it off your hands, off your balance sheet. So what do you assess is their mood? I mean, I suppose we would have said this time last year that a lot of them were on strike, that they were kind of sitting with their arms folded. There are always going to be exceptions. And I think you're likely to be one of that small group because someone who's got a great track record, who's always going to be worth talking to. But for others without that kind of track record or those kind of connections or those long-term relationships that you've had over decades, they wouldn't have been entertained. What's the sense now that the strike might be over, particularly we've had a decent run? We've had a pretty difficult year, 2022, with, with a big hurricane lots of and a war, lots of things going on. And yet we're coming out with some very nice full-year results, very pleasant reading for most people, not too much to worry about. And we've put the price up since then. So things looking pretty good. So do you think investors will take note of that? And they'll think, you know what, maybe I should be having more conversations here. I hope so. But first and most importantly, and this is not meant as over-affected CEO humbleness, I had very, very, very little to do with this. Chris McEwen, Bobby Anderson, Aurora Smith & Bank, so I mentioned them earlier, they very much, and the team here had these conversations. I'd say the broader... ILS investor marketplace is probably still processing what they've experienced over the last 
five years, right? And they're still trying to figure out one, they wanted to see is this price margin change real, right? You've talked about this before, it hasn't happened. Is it real? I think we can tick that box. It's real, it's measurable. You can you can quantify, you can all debate about whether the brokers are too conservative, the underwriters are too optimistic, or however you want to do it, but there's definitely more margin in the system. So I think that's a tick. I think they want to see where is their place in the structure and where they fit into the marketplace. And that's why I say there's others for people that want to source a lot of tail risk and stay up in that part of it. I would not be the right person to comment on those investors. We happen to like what I described, which is partnership capital. And we found some capacity that said, hey, we do believe it's different. We do want this risk. It diversifies away from what we do in other places. Let's have it. Let's go for it. And so those conversations were very productive, very positive. They're not very broad. There's not thousands of investors lining up to do this. So I'm probably not the right person to talk about the broader ILS investor community because I just don't interact with it all that much. It doesn't sound like you know, you're getting unsolicited offers of capacity from people you didn't know before, and which might have happened at times in the past, say, you know, 10 years ago. We're having people that are interested. And obviously, when you do something like the team did, it creates interest and people are calling. But we're having healthy, productive conversations about what that may end up being down the road. But it's not a stampede like prior years we might have seen after 05 or 01. Yep. As you become more of an insurance group over time, you're going to be more dependent on reinsurance, one assumes. And as a buyer of reinsurance, how are you preparing this harder reinsurance, this reset reinsurance market, is it affecting the way that you go about your business, your own appetites and your own ability to grow, for example? Because we got our start on reinsurance with the Property Cat Treaty book, yeah. we deliberately kept the property insurance book very, very tight and limited. And we're not doing it on a individually underwritten basis. We're supporting a partner in that space. So property, the quick answer is Thankfully, we see across the whole marketplace. Thankfully, we saw it was coming and we worked with our partner and started in Q4 of last year of increasing prices, raising deductibles, tightening coverage, and thinking ahead for what we would predict the cap market to be, which is higher up, more expensive, lower limit. And so to me, that's always somewhat interesting to watch in the marketplace. That change, particularly because we're in the ENS space there, we can do it very quickly. Yep. It's interesting to watch. Every firm has a different reaction time to it. And I'm always surprised by some that lag the reality that's coming down the pike in six to nine months with your cat renewal. They wait until the cat renewal and then start trying to figure out how to price for it. So that's the property story, smaller for us. On the casualties and professional line side, we've been renewing those treaties, really not much changed. We're new, so we're not getting the absolute peak terms as a new entrant. You're just not going to get that from reinsurers. And so most of what we've done has just kind of renewed as before with some tweaks here and there and hasn't really put any crunch on us one way or another. Our goal here is to optimize that reinsurance purchase as best we can, but no real pressure on us in terms of having to change what we do because of our seated reinsurance. And in terms of your own philosophy as how much of a net writer you want to be on the insurance side, well, one, what is that and has that had to change? Or well, given the fact that business is generally very well rated at the moment, presumably you also have that instinct to want to retain more at times like this. Yeah. Your gut and your experience as an underwriter says, I want to keep everything gross as net. And that's the best way to be, particularly for the lines of business we're in. You know, our political risk business needs capacity. Sometimes our construction business needs capacity. And even on the rest of the lines of business, they need more than what we can comfortably take a net any one risk. So we started out with, in very round terms, Mark, a kind of a 50-50 idea of 
we'll start this up. Reinsurers need to have faith in us and the teams we're hiring. You take half, we'll take half. And then from there, we'll kind of right-size that as we move along. I would say the direction of travel will be to be a little bit less Buddhist session over time and more as we mature and evolve and grow up in a company terms, we'll seek out some more excess of loss as well. But for the moment, we're quite happy. Startup, things are new. We're all going at this hard together. Let's share the risk. And that's kind of where we landed. I suppose, of course, you diversify over time and your book becomes less volatile naturally anyway, right? You're always a little more volatile in years one and two and three of an insurance business because you're not up on plane yet. Yep. As we get into that, that part of our journey and all these businesses are up and going, you absolutely have a lot more. You would dial back the quarter share from a pure risk management standpoint. You dial back the quarter share a little bit and try and find excess of loss or aggregate solutions to the volatility. It certainly seems anecdotal that whilst the dog was perfectly happy to wag itself for the last three or four years in insurance, this reinsurance wag has been pretty strong. And it seems that some of the evidence I've seen in Q1 already this year that that is affecting pricing again and is giving additional impetus on pricing that had already been increasing for maybe 15, 16 quarters before that. It's just giving it another push on the property side of things, particularly, and one presumes even more so on property that has catastrophe exposure. Is that chiming with your experience? It's just giving another nudge forward and stopping anything from going backwards in property. In property, reinsurance had the reset at 1-1. We believe that will continue at least, if not accelerate a bit more as we get into the early summer months here. And that has triggered for sure on the insurance property side, a third or fourth, you've noted it well, you know, it's been a long string of quarters in a row where property insurance has gone up. It's triggered whatever number of wave you want to put on it. I can vouch for that both as a business person in the insurance and reinsurance industry and as an individual consumer. We had a lovely condo in Sanibel, Florida, where I spoke to you last that now is a wonderful sunroof. The roof came off the building. Whoa. The insurance companies have been great. They're working through the claims. But as we start to go down, look about how do we insure going forward? Boy, oh boy, is it a different marketplace. So, And then I talk to friends and as they help their condo associations or homeowners, it's very much a fifth, sixth wave of dislocation in cat-exposed property insurance. And so We'll see how it plays out. It'll be very interesting. But I think that's coming down the pike as we move forward here over the next 12, 18 months. Good luck on that renewal, Greg. It sounds like a sharp <laughs> intake of breath and real right. evaluation about whether you use this condo enough <laughs> will be had. Exactly. Excellent. But in other lines, it doesn't seem to be quite the case. Obviously, it's been well documented in DNO. this kind of, you know, we have that massive spike and then things coming off actually quite hard and almost alarmingly for some. Any other lines where you're seeing that we're past peak on rate? So when we sit back and we just got done with our board meeting yesterday, we sit back and look at the industry. I'm pretty happy. Rates, yes. Pace of increase may be slowing. It really is only DNO. In our world, sorry, there's workers' comp as well, but we're not in that space. So I'm just an observer, industry observer of that. Yeah. The DNO, nobody wants to give back 10, 15, 20, whatever number we want to put on it. But we are at levels where that is not a rash and silly decision to make. You could say there was an overreaction and this is actually a correction and it's actually probably good normalizing things. We'd always rather keep, and we have to be very vigilant <laughs> as well because you got to stay ahead of trend, right? There's only a limited amount of space we have to give back, right? So when I uh, express comfort of where we are at the moment, if it continues at this pace, it will become uncomfortable very quickly because you're not only eroding the premium because of the rate decreases, but your trend is pushing against that as well. And so you're just not able to keep that up. Everywhere else I look, 
we're getting right above trend. Yes, it's less than we used to get, but we're definitely moving in a, in a better direction. And I think broadly in the longer tail lines of business, what you've seen in the industry, at least through the last year or two, and on the industry basis in the fourth quarter is accident years 15 to 19 continue to develop adversely for a swath of the industry. Not my place to name names. And 20 and 21 are kind of holding steady or releasing a bit. I think that also helps feed the marketplace in terms of being disciplined about pricing because claims, actuaries, underwriters are all looking at the same set of data, which says, hey, where I thought I was jumping off of wasn't as good as where I was jumping off of. And so it kind of puts more added pressure on making sure we maintain our discipline. It often happens at this stage in the cycle, the industry is able to reappraise some of those older reserves, partly in the light of the fact that the market is so good right now, and they're able to make additional provisions where perhaps before they weren't able to. And those provisions, most classical actuarial pricing models, those provisions play forward with the pricing, right? It's the starting point of your work for what is my price going to be in the future. And so it helps. And I think we're at a level of sophistication in terms of risk management, in terms of data and analytics, that it's much, much harder for any management team to turn a blind eye to where the trends are headed. And there's more discipline than there has been in the past. But the thing to watch out for, the market to watch out for, in my mind, is a simple one, but it's always one that we pay close attention to is what's the capacity of the industry? Are people putting more at risk again? Because that's what's really helped get things back on a better level on the insurance side is people pull back on their capacity. Sure, you see pockets here and there, people doing a bit more, but nothing back to the old days where they needed to course correct again in a meaningful way. Right. So you don't see sort of the big bazookas coming no. back out into the market no. in the way they no. used to. When we last spoke, I asked you about medium to long-term plans for expansion. Would those plans make you into an international group or more international than you already are? When I talked to everyone, we'd probably say that what's happened in the last two years has been better than expected. Would international plans come forward in your reckoning? What's your thinking on that right now? What's your international expansion thoughts? When I first asked, it was like, hey, well, ask me that in three years' time. Job one is to continue the build out of what I described to you earlier around the 10 to 20 businesses in Bermuda and the US. We're far along in certain businesses where if a broker and a client have a risk, if it's our appetite, we're in the top 10 folks are going to call, right? But there's a lot of our businesses where we're not there yet because we're still building them, right? So that's job probably one, two, and three. Absolutely. Went to London a few weeks ago for the first time since COVID. We have a specific relationship there where we're the ultimate capital provider, and we're very happy with that. Took the time to visit with some friends, both in the market and leading the market. And I think we will look at that space of London generally, Lloyd's specifically, but it's still Mark out there in the overtime as we move forward. We just got to really stay focused on what we're building. I'm very proud of what we are building and what we have done here. To compete in the broad international world of Asia and Europe, you just need to be a bigger scale player. And that's not something we're going to tackle even in the medium term. But I can see us over the short medium term exploring where London may or may not fit. Well, you're further ahead in your planning than you were before. What about potential liquidity at the end of Horizon, perhaps for some of your original investors? Presumably, that's still also slightly too far into the future, or is any thinking crystallizing around that? For example, we've seen successful IPOs and now another filing. So again, it seems that the investors have been receptive. London investors were receptive as well. So London and New York, both receptive in the public markets again, and obviously actually generally insurance stocks, public insurance stocks, our specialty and reinsurance stocks been doing pretty well. 
in the last 12 months as well. So again, is that part of the calculus? Possibly. I said to you earlier, one of the wonderful things about being private is I can be a little <laughs> no, more. I know, I know. One of the things that doesn't change though, is that my job is to make sure that we, together with all my colleagues here, we build a great franchise and then do what's best for the shareholders. It just so happens in this instance, two shareholders make up well over 90% of the shareholder money, as opposed to the old days where it was distributed amongst the public equity market. But the task remains the same, which is to deliver value for shareholders. That may come, yes, in an IPO, that may come in a strategic sale, or that may come in a new investor wanting to really help us upsize the thing and provide some liquidity to existing investors. We are very agnostic to which way we go on that path. So that's the main thought. The task remains the same, and that's where we're focused. I'm very blessed. The folks we've partnered with, Hellman and Freeman and Carlisle, have been invested in either mid-ocean with myself or Arch with Dino Ciardano in the past and have comfortable windows that are not, geez, we got to build this thing and sell it in three years and move on. This is for the longer term. They stayed in those investments nearly seven years each. I'm giving you ranges of numbers here. We will see where we all go, but we're not in any rush to move to some kind of event like that. Third thought is hard not to notice that there is activity starting. You know, It was easy to say for the last year or so, there's not much going on, guys. It's not really an interesting conversation because even if we want to do something, there's nothing really happening. Great for the folks that have done it. Great for the folks that may be doing it shortly. We're just observing they have been in existence for seven, eight, nine, ten years. So just kind of framing up the fact that the folks moving out into the equity markets recently are not new entrants. They're more established folks that have been at it for a little bit longer. Absolutely. What about m and I mean, the classical reading of this cycle at this time is that no one's really interested in m and because they're too busy getting their heads down and just doing business and putting good business on the books and growing those businesses that they've already got. Do you think at some point that appetite for m and might start to come back? Presumably it would come back when rates start to taper. But could that also be part of your own growth strategy? Because there are always subscale businesses or interesting bolt-on acquisitions that are possible. Well, M&A has taken a pause, broadly speaking, in the equity markets. I think we'll see in our industry a ramp back up again and a little more activity going on. For us, Advantage, it's all about, we just covered one part of that activity in our previous question. On the other side, we're, yeah, we're willing to listen to all kinds of opportunities we're kind of in a little sweet spot. It's got to be relatively small. We can't do a big, huge transaction. It's got to diversify what we do in terms of product or customer segment, and it's got to fit the right pricing levels. That leaves us in a pretty tight area, but we do spend time on it. We do look at it. Those are all interesting comments. You know, Nothing on the horizon, nothing in the near term. Okay. At the beginning, you gave yourself a tick on tech. I don't know if it was a tick and a half or two ticks. You'll have to remember what marks you gave yourself on your tech build out. Obviously, it is one of those great advantages of when you can start from scratch. You've got no legacy. You've got no sort of big old green screen server things in the corner of the room anymore. And you can go straight to the cloud and, of course, make things really simple for yourselves. Are there any kind of obvious runs on the board that you could say you, you've managed to get by having this no legacy and being able to leapfrog straight into the latest tech Absolutely. I'll pause and share memories of days past. I'm old enough to remember a telex. I actually have operated a telex machine. <laughs> You'll have to explain that to your listeners later. And I also remember the first stop I had, we used to have to water the mainframes to keep them cool. They had to literally go in and change the water in the, in the water-cooled <laughs> system. So way back machine. 
Design-wise, philosophically, we've built everything in the cloud. It just gives us such great flexibility and access from everywhere. And it will let us avoid big tech debt in the future. It lets us be nimble and move quickly. After your talent, the next most important asset you have as an insurance and reinsurance company is your data, right? We are, in the end, a data analyst company. We take in a submission, we analyze it in a number of different ways, and we put out a promise to pay for a price. That's the fundamental definition of a data analyst company. Our hypothesis is that we're just going to do that better to better inform our underwriters as they make decisions or claims folks as they make decisions. And the data that we've been able to set up, the actual structure of how we store and move our data around has let us already get some wins on the board in terms of analytical models. One is what we call our legal venue model. It lets us judge every legal jurisdiction in the United States for high, medium, or low risk around our healthcare business. So we were able to build that right out of the blocks in the first year of existence. No, we don't have our own claims data of 10 years to feed it, but we had enough of some proxy data from around the industry that's publicly available third-party data to piece that together and build that. We could only do that because we set ourselves up in a way to be able to store the data and manipulate it very quickly and get that work done. We just got done yesterday talking about a new DNO model for competitors. I won't go into what exactly we're doing. We're going to be able to access better data there to make better decisions. And the third one that's coming online is political risk. We were able to do in about a year and a bit what it would have taken us in old world multiple years to build, again, because of this nimbleness infrastructure. So we're getting some wins on the board. I'm a tough grader. The people have done a fantastic job here around building the technology, getting wins on the board for data analytics early on. I think I gave him a tick and a half out of two, but Mark, like any good professor, I go back and revise that to two ticks because my <laughs> tick and a half was only on the reflection of, geez, I just want more of it as fast as I can, like any good technology consumer. So it's all kind of underwriting based. That's your added value part. It's the underwriting base. You said that the workbench you do yourself, for example, but there are quite a lot of good systems out there, for example, offering to triage submissions so that your underwriter sees the best priced and the most likely to win things in the right order so that they can improve their productivity, that kind of thing. Have any of those tools caught your eye or been able to use those? From my perspective, the biggest contribution to the industry in SureTech has brought and will bring is what you just described, which is specific solutions for specific parts of the value chain. Yeah, And I think there's been some wonderful successes there. We've harnessed a couple of them. At the moment, we're not in high flow businesses. I, I've described reinsurance, which obviously is a few number of large transactions. And then specialty insurance, most of the lines that we're in, we're in an excess of loss product. So again, play. this is not that many contracts. Correct. Although I will tell you, we are working on how can we get submissions in without touching them with unstructured data. And that will likely be something that we partner with somebody that's worked deeply on that one specific part of the value chain and how do we harness that into what we do. So we definitely see value. We've got 70 different data sources already brought in-house here. Over 10% of our people are in data and analytics and technology. And so they are very much a big part of what we do here. We're more invested in the average insurance and reinsurance carrier into this space and will remain so into the future because I think it'll provide differentiating capabilities for our talents. 
it seems one of the great opportunities for a specialty underwriter is to be able to push some of that expertise down into the SME sector, normally where the economics don't work. A really complicated product that normally takes a huge amount of underwriting, lots of hands having to touch it and expensively paid hands going through and therefore it making the minimum premium for that business too high for an SME to even consider. But maybe the future might be a big opportunity to automate some of those products and perhaps, okay, they're going to have to streamline them. They're not going to have very bespoke wordings or anything. But if you can automate some of the underwriting of those, it seems like there's a big opportunity there. I was talking to someone, for example, the other day who's automating M&A insurance, you know, reps and warranties, obviously very manual, very bespoke and very high end. And now, of course, you know, even small businesses sell themselves to each other all the time. So again, it's a great product. And clearly, it's a product that any business owner would want to buy. So again, do you see opportunities like that where technology is going to be absolutely at the heart of it? Because simply without the technology, you couldn't do it. Listen, Mark, for sure. One of my biggest challenges to keep myself in check, I want to do everything all the time, anywhere I can around tech data and analytics. But we definitely want to make that move down. I'll just echo what I said earlier around the conversation around to leave Bermuda, U.S. shores and add to us geographically. The same thing here, which is, hey, we got a lot of work right in front of us right now to make sure we build the businesses for the spots we've said we're going to build up. So that's the key focus. But we are already taking a small step in that direction, Mark. One of our core lines is in construction, and one of the products in there is subcontractor default insurance, which is, I won't go into the long explanation of it, but effectively, it's an alternative to the surety business in the construction field. The teams are already working on how do we take that from what historically has been a product only bought by the very largest of contracting construction companies, and how do we bring it down middle market? And it's exactly how you described it, which is can't be the all singing, all dancing product that it was before. And it has to have a technology solution that lets people get through it quicker and faster. So we're going to make that walk. It's just going to be a little bit delayed as we finish the build out of our businesses, but we're, we're putting our markers down early on. So I'm right to think that that is a glimpse of the future. So ever more sophisticated products going down the food chain to consumers who wouldn't have been able to access those products before. Seems a good place to end, Greg. I can't believe it's been two years since we last spoke. (laughs) And hopefully we'll see you over here in London at some point soon. And I need to get over to Bermuda and to the States as well. So yeah, we need to get out of these lockdown habits of not traveling as much as we used to. So thank you so much for speaking. I've really enjoyed it as ever. It's been fascinating because I think we've managed to get through everything because it is complicated and I appreciate your patience with me. Let's make sure it's not two years before we talk again. Thanks so much, Greg. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. My pleasure and look forward to doing it again soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. 
Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>